Hey there, everybody. You are listening to This Show is So Gay. I'm your host, Ken Schneck. This is episode number 426. As always, you can get in touch with us by dropping us a line. Send an email on over to ken at thisshowissogay.com. Stroll on over to thisshowissogay.com to learn all about the fun things happening with our little gay radio show that could. You can follow us on Twitter. The handle is This Show Is So Gay. And of course, you know what to do. Go to that Facebook. Type in This Show Is So Gay. Like us, because we sure as heck like you. We have such a fun show for you this week. Let me introduce our guest. Rick Skye is a multi-award winning performer who has written a string of outrageous comic reviews, including The Flip Side of Neil Sedaka, which was a Bistro Award winning performance, Macabre, a tabloid fable, The War of the Mama Roses, It's Madam with an E, Barbara and Liza Live, and the international hit A Slice O Minnelli, which has enjoyed successful seasons in Covent Garden, at the Apollo Theatre in London's West End, and at the Dublin Theatre Festival, where Rick received the award for Best Achievement in Performance. Rick hosts Don't Tell Mama's new monthly variety show, Bazazz, a sequined variety. The show features Rick's heralded impersonation as Liza, singing in his own voice, and it showcases guest performers. And you know, in all of his spare time, he just won the 2017 Mac Award for Best Impersonation. What an absolute treat. Rick, welcome to This Show is So Gay. Hello. I am so excited to have you on, I can't even tell you. Okay. Tell, tell. I, I will tell. You know what? I'm going to ruin the ending for you. I am such a fan, like having grown up in New York City and having been a singing waiter in the West Village. I have seen you before. I love what you do. And I'm excited to introduce our listening audience to what happens off Broadway, right? Like what happens in a different part of the city and how yeah. incredible it is. Yeah. Oh, my God. So you've seen me perform. I have. Oh, I didn't know that. That's great. <laughs> I'm so thrilled. What's interesting about what's going on there is, you know, Don't Tell Mamas is on 46th Street, so it's just uh, on Restaurant Row. So the reason a lot of shows that I've done, like, do well there is because tourists go back and forth along the street, and they're looking for, like, a really New York experience. And uh, when the things that go on there, like a Judy and Liza show or something like that, it's something they're not going to see any place else. And um, so we get a lot of walk-in business. You know, it's not like typical cabaret where you have like 50 of our friends come and see you. It's, we ran, like the last show I did there ran for seven years based on people just coming to town and on a, you know, Thursday and by Saturday we're, you know, we're sold out from them just seeing the posters and things like that. So it's that, it really is an off-off Broadway type of a situation, but I think we're supplying something to the city that helps make New York the city that it is. I would actually put out there, and I've said this before on the show over the past 10 years, there's a lot that's going on at, at Don't Tell Mamas and down at the Duplex that I would say rivals the entertainment that's happening on Broadway. We, the weird part is we get a lot, I get a lot of people come and say, you know, we came and we saw three Broadway shows and then we came to see you, and I think you were their favorite thing that we saw this weekend. And I think it's because a lot of Broadway shows now are really like big machines, you know, and nothing, you know, it's all time to the second and you don't know what's pre-recorded, what's not pre-recorded. You don't know who's in it, who's not in it. 
And, you know, years ago, shows were based around sort of personalities and their, you know, Carol Channing and these kind of things. And it, you know, depended on them and their little special magic going on. And I think that's what the intimate shows that Don't Tell Mamas have going for them. Like, you know, uh, you're singing right in front of the people. They know it's live. They know things are going to go wrong. They, you know, if you touch them with your comedy, you know, you can really play with them and, you know, it's not like the next thing has to, the next big set piece has to roll on or the next thing has to happen. So it's things, the reason I like playing there is because things get to also grow. So if you're there week after week after week after week, you know, there are comedy bits that you develop just from like one little thing that happens one night. It could be like the focus of the show, you know, six months later, all of a sudden you're like, yeah, that you know, I tripped over that little thing, and now it's like the biggest thing in the show. We get the biggest laugh out of that. So that's really the consistency and being able to perform constantly is a is a big thing. And people wander in, and they have such talent. I used to work at a place called the Oaks down in the West Village, and yeah. I couldn't believe the people would just wander in off the street, and some of them would get up to the piano and sing, and I would think, "What the heck am I doing here? You're way better than I am." <laughs> Yeah, well, I don't tell mamas, actually, over the years, you know, Liza herself has come and sat there with, you know, Terry White and all those people and and gotten up to sing. And, um, you know, they're sort of bringing all of that back a little bit. Amazing. I think um, now they're trying, you know, um, for a little bit, they were trying to appeal to sort of a non-Broadway audience, you know what I mean? Yeah. And now... Um, I said, there's really no place to go in the city anymore just to sort of sing the scores of all the shows that there's Maurice Price is down in the village. But um, a lot of uh, television people drop in and get up and sing. And um, it's, they, they really keep that tradition going there. Yeah. We've skipped so many steps already in this interview. We got to dial it back <laughs> a little bit. We just went right into it. You, you trained with the Joffrey Ballet. You had quite the association working with Stella Adler. I can only imagine that the dream of Little Rick Sky was to be doing exactly what you're doing. Actually, what happened was I remember I was in college and I was you know, trying to be like a very serious actor. And, uh, and I've done a lot of serious acting things, but I, I was having my portrait sketched by someone who went to Parsons School of Design, yeah. and he, he said, well, what do you want to do? You know, just keep talking to me while I draw you so I can get who you are. And I said, oh, I'm, you know, I'm going to be an actor, and I'm going to like be in Broadway shows, and da, da, da. And he said, no, no, you're going to end up doing your ladies. Huh. You're going to do your ladies. You love those ladies. You're going to do those ladies. And I was like, that's the furthest thing from my mind. And... I wish I could go. I wish I could go someplace and like tell him he was right. Actually, right. <laughs> like how would he know that at you know nineteen years old or something? But but sometimes people who draw you they see things and like he just I guess that was the thing that I sparked most to when he was talking to me. Amazing. You know, someone's name who I have never, ever said in the history of this show, which I regret because she and I share a birthday and I'm a little bit obsessed with her. You got to work with her. Tell our listening audience about Sandy Duncan. Oh, Sandy Duncan used to teach class at the um, American Dance Machine, actually. I don't know if you know what that is. It's a dance company that recreates Broadway show dances and notates them so that future generations can sort of see them and see what, you know, went on in the 1950s and 1940s. So I was part of that dance company. And um, so she used to come and teach class there. And I got to then, um, and Cheetah Rivera would come in. Wow. And, uh, all people like that. But I, I worked on a, an American Dance Machine TV show special, uh, Wolf Trap, and uh, she and her husband, Don Korea, then did a big number from um, a show that was called Over Here, 
it was a big, big, um, John Travolta was on that show, actually, and the Andrew sisters and all people like that. And so she came in and she helped, uh, did a big, big, uh, Anne Ryan King's big number from that. I'm obsessed with Sandy Duncan. I gotta, I gotta <laughs> talk to Sandy Duncan at some point. And you have a friendship, you had this friendship with Neil Sedaka, which, which led to so much content for you. Yes, and I, I was um, friendly with, I was friends with him. He came to see me at the show, actually, and it was uh, at the Promenade Theater that was off-Broadway. And after the show, I sang in a, I had the highest part in the show, so I had a high singing voice at that time. And he came backstage and said, you sing like I do. You sing very high. And I said, would you like to come to my house for Christmas? Uh, Kathy Lee will be there. Regis will be there. We, it's nothing. We just sing songs around the piano like that. So I, I went there and I met his whole family. And uh, then in the time that I spent with him, I realized like he had written all of these sort of theater songs and like the songs that were not hits that were on the flip sides of his hit songs were very interesting. And so I thought, well, maybe I could put those in a show and that'll be something that I could do and to introduce myself to New York. This was a long time ago. And um, he he gave it his blessing and he gave me like the use of his archives and, you know, all the music and all that. And then he came to see the show and it was a very, uh, really glamorous, fun start for me because opening night, like he arranged that we went across the street to Joe Allen's and when I arrived, like they, the whole restaurant stood up and applauded. You know, it was it was like a magical evening. I just sung all the this composer's songs for him. You know, and he Amazing. gave a standing ovation. It was really wonderful. And I did that show for uh, toured around with that show for a while. Um, it had a big band and backup singers. And actually, my the new show that I'm doing it sort of went back to that because I, I've just been doing solo shows for a long time, and now I have backup boys. And uh, razzle dazzle. So, look, Rick. I don't mean to minimize the award-winning performance of the flip side of Neil Sedaka, but did you just tell a story where you were around a piano with Regis and Kathy Lee and Neil Sedaka? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's it, incredible. Yeah. It was fun. You know, when you fall into these little groups of people, though, it's in New York City. It's like one day you could be doing nothing, and the next day you're singing around the piano. You know, it's that kind of a city. And, uh, and yeah, and actually I used to call there, call Kathy Lee's house. And she was like, I like that young man. He's very, very polite. Who's that polite young man? And you can go a long way, like in New York, if you just have, uh, if you watch a step and have some good manners. I love it. I absolutely love it. All right. Rick Skye, earliest Liza memory, go. Oh, um, I remember I went to see Cabaret, the movie. Yeah. And my mother sent my brother to see it first, to see because it was like rated R or something. And would I be, should I go see it? And uh, he came back and said, yeah, sure, there's nothing in it. And <laughs> that he can't see. And now the, look, I remember seeing that film and just, you know, I just fell in, I fell in love with the electricity in her performance and like the just that when you're a kid and your feelings are so deep, you know, those kid feelings and your your energy is so high and all of that. And she sort of embodied that to me. I'm like, oh, she gets me like she understands. That's how I that's how I view life. Like I want to go through it like that. So so I think um, that was it. That's what grabbed me. 
Yeah. For our listening audience, maybe it's possible, Rick, that we have some younger listeners who are like, I just don't get it. I don't get the Liza thing. How do you explain it to people? Because oh, really? as, as we move forward in life, you know, there are more and more people who have maybe not seen Cabaret, which is a sin, but don't know her performances. How do we explain Liza and her importance to younger generations or just to people oh, who God. haven't been exposed? Well, it's so funny because I worked in a hotel once who, and I told people I'm doing this Liza Minnelli show where I sing, and they had only seen her on Arrested Development. So they were like, Lucille too sings? What? You know, like that kind of thing. And then I said, oh, no, 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 like, you have to see Liza with a Z, and you have to see Cabaret, and you have to see New York, New York, and you have to see all of this. But, uh, you know, a lot of Liza's work was done on the stage. So it's, unless you can get a video of some of her, like, big concerts, you don't maybe quite get it. But... Um, there, she just has this X factor, actually. What she did was she bridged the gap. She bridged the gap between old-fashioned show business and modern show business. So she always had that coming from the old MGM musicals, coming from Judy Garland, coming from Vida Minnelli, coming from that, like, tradition, that sort of vaudeville show-must-go-on tradition. But she had all the, the new modern conveniences to play with and take it a step further. So, you know, she's the first performer I ever saw perform with a cordless microphone. You know, she was the first, you know, because she danced all over the place. And, um, and she brought, you know, she would perform in a Broadway theater, but there's these big banks of speakers on either side of the stage yeah. so that she could sort of blast you. In. <laughs> you know, it was a bigger sound. It was like a harder edged sound than people had been used to before. Um, so I think that's what she actually did for this whole last um, 40 years, basically, is that she kept pushing and pushing and pushing what you could, what could be done on the stage uh, to the next level. And, but always keeping that same heart and soul of what sort of show business used to be, like the Ethel Mermany type of, you know, bang it across and have a positive message. And, you know, rock and roll is a different thing. It's, it's, you know, it's all about the energy. Right. And a lot of the lyrics are, you know, about anger or this or that. But she, you know, kept sort of a positive message and, um, but made, but modernized it for people. Yeah. What if, let's make it more specific. You're appearing right now on this show is so gay. How would you describe the, the gay appreciation for Liza? For me growing up, to me, everything just seems so drab, you know, yeah. <laughs> it seems so boring. And, um, you know, we were middle class and um, people didn't really dress that uh, uh, flashily back then or whatever. The only fun I sort of had when I was a kid was all came from show business. I loved watching old movies and I loved watching, um, I liked anything with a little drama in it and a little this and that. And of course, I grew up, you know, watching The Wizard of Oz and seeing all those movies. And then, but nobody in my generation was doing that. You couldn't do it anymore. That was all over. And then here was this one person who was doing that. And so I just think, um, think that gay people, I mean, if they've had it, I, I can only speak for myself. And so yeah. that's what I was, I'll say that that's what that was for me, that I like, I mean, I'm attracted to anything with a few sequins on it. And that makes life look a little more fun and zippy. And, um, and also she looks like somebody, I think at the time who, for me, like she didn't look like the average person. Do you know what I mean? And yeah. so, and I wasn't one of those people who like was so handsome or so, this or so beautiful that but she still managed to, I remember Stella Adler said to me once, I said, what did you, what did you think of Liza Minnelli's performance and something? And she said, you know, for a basically uh, unattractive girl, she's 
she's uh, made a big career for herself. She was a lot about how people looked, and <laughs> like this one, this one should be a matinee idol, and this one should be a leading man. But and she said, like for someone who's basically not your average person, like a beautiful person, she's achieved a great deal. And so I think part of that for me is. Is was also that that you know if there's a way to do something like you can figure it out and she took what she had and turned it into something really glamorous and became really you know the height of of glamour in the 1970s and that was her sort of decade really you know yeah. with all the modern Halston clothes and all the her look and all of that so and she's lived like a really modern person you know she's really broken a lot of I think show business people in general live a certain kind of a life. But I think, you know, she's just been her own woman and very strong and has, has, has had her own companies and her own, you know, show and all of that. I think she's very quiet about all of that. But, you know, that's the person behind everything. She's like a very smart, smart woman who who found a way to uh, overcome, you know, even her parents' legacy and all of those things. She wasn't just her parents' kid. She got everything done on her own. So. Yeah. That appeals to me. I got to say, I enjoy your reflection so much, but when you say statements like Stella Adler once said to me, it's hard for me to listen because it's such an incredible phrase that I appreciate so much. I love your life. It's so incredible. <laughs> Again, listeners, we are here with Rick Sky, a multi-award winning performer. Look, Rick, there are two different types of people, although there is some crossover. We have people over here who have a great appreciation for Liza Minnelli, but then there's mm -hmm. a much smaller group of people who actually perform as her. I mm -hmm. am in the larger group. You are in the smaller group. At what point did you say, I can totally do this? Actually, uh, I had written, you wrote it, you talked about it before. I wrote a show called Macabre, and it, a tabloid fable. And in the middle of the show, there were about five people in the show, and they all played five parts. So they were always either on stage or changing their clothes. And I... Uh, at one point, I had written this sort of funny bunch of parody songs about a bunch of celebrities making fun of Cher and like Donnie and Marie Osmond and people like that. And I had written this one thing about Liza Minnelli called Mind Cher, which was based on this. She had been in the show on Broadway where she did this dance and she was in a little rolling chair. People pushed her around and the, the critics kept saying, oh, she can't even dance anymore. They're whirling around in a chair. You know, it had nothing to do with that. It was just the way that, you know, she was doing it the way Fred Astaire did it in a movie, and they sort of took it and made fun of it. So I made fun of that, and I took, the ch I took her chair number from Cabaret, and I made it all about, uh, like, her weaknesses and things like that. And it was a very funny song, and nobody could perform it because they were all changing their clothes at that point. And I was the director of the show and the writer, and I said, fine, 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 I'll do it. So I plopped on a wig and I drew some, a big red mouth on and wore a sequin shirt and I did this number and it brought down the house at every wow. show. So then that show was over after nine months and someone said, do you want to keep performing? You could do that chair number in our comedy showcase. We have a gay comedy showcase who would like it. So I did that and it brought down the house and then everyone involved said, you know, everybody else is 20 minutes and you did like five write another song or get up and talk like her or that. I said, oh, I don't really want to do that. I, you know, I'm not really interested in doing this. I don't think I can do it. And then um, little by little, that's how it happened. Week after week, they kept saying, write another song, write another thing. And then I finally buckled down and someone very wise said to me, you know, the people who do this, 
the people who impersonate people, they get to travel. They go all around the world and they do this. And regular cabaret performers don't often get to do that. Maybe they get famous in New York City, but that's about it. And I know you want to be in like real show business and go to cities and like something. And if you're associated with something like that, that almost sells itself. Someone doing a Liza Minnelli show, there will be people who will want to do that. And I said, okay. And I wrote the show and then opened it um, in 2001. And after that, like by 2005, let's say, I had been started traveling to Europe and I played in England and Ireland and Spain and um, then all over the United States. And so he, what he predicted was actually true. And every time I've said, I think I'll throw in the towel on this, I want to do something else, like something great comes along, you know, <laughs> a great offer to like appear in a London theater in the West End with Stephen Brinberg, who does Barbara Streisand, and we wrote a show called Barbara and Liza together, and that like ran at this big, 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 you know, 400 seat theater, and um, I got to do, then I got to do lines at Christmas time in the West End and 800 seat theater. It's really, really magical. So every time I just about hang up my shoes, um, the, even Don't Tell Mama came to me after Judy and Liza finished running for seven years. They came to me in the fall and said, like, we kind of miss having Liza here on a Saturday night. <laughs> oh, like, she should be at Don't Tell Mama. And why don't you, maybe you could do it like a variety show and the whole thing wouldn't have to be you. It could be, you know, other guests and stuff like that. And so that's how it's just kept going because of that. Who are you when you become Liza? What What does becoming Liza do for you, Rick Sky? <clears throat> It's a whole thing, actually. It, it actually allows me to express myself fully. Wow. And so when people say, why do you... A lot of people have said even recently to me, when I watch you, I'm not so much seeing an impersonation of Liza Minnelli, but I understand that what it allows you to do is all the things that you want to do. You get to sing the kinds of songs you want to sing. I write a lot of parody lyrics and things like that. And, and then there are a lot of big ballads in it and stuff like that. And they're like, there's no role now that you could play actually that would allow you to do that so you've you've made a showcase for yourself to express yourself fully and it's really true i think everything in me that responds to her as a performer when i take that three hours to put on the makeup and like become her it allows me the greatest freedom to be who i really want to be walking down the street but probably can't have you ever found yourself in situations where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm totally being Liza and I'm not on stage? No, it takes the whole thing. Okay, actually. I love it. It, it take, I don't. And when people go, oh, do the voice, I'm like, mm, yeah, no, not till the last <laughs> nail goes on. Like that's when that happens, actually. And even like today, I had a dance rehearsal for the show, and the choreographer said, like, okay, this is good. I know when you we. What I'm planning on is that when you put the last eyelash on, like, this is all going to be taken up a notch. And I said, exactly. Like, right now it's just me learning these steps. But, you know, when I have the sequin outfit on and the, the, the last eyelash goes on, then it will, it will be a whole other thing. And that's exactly what happened. That's amazing. Yes, I would imagine that one of the annoying things <clears throat> of people knowing who you are is people saying to you, do it, do Liza. Yeah. <laughs> and then that's happened through my whole career, too, because yeah. every time I do a show, there's always some some form of imitation involved <laughs> or some voice or something. And they're like, you know, or like when I did Madam, they're like, be funny. And I used to laugh because I would see, when I would see videos of Waylon Flowers doing Madam, I would say, oh gosh, it's just the same jokes over and over again. It was just that same joke. And then I realized why. It's because people are always saying like, be funny. You know, and they expect it to be funny 24 hours a day. And it's like, okay, so I need a couple of jokes that I can 
throw into any situation and I can make people laugh and then make a getaway rather than trying to come up with some brilliantly new funny thing in every situation. You know, that's really hard while you're working a puppet. And by the way, another gay icon that we were going to talk about, Madam. <laughs> Madam is totally a gay icon. If Again, somehow we have listeners, and we always want to bring people up to speed. For people who don't know who Madam is, how do you explain Madam? Today, people have Avenue Q and all that kind of stuff. So the idea of like a sort of an off-color puppet or some an adult puppet is is not that really strange. But then it was she was again like an amalgamation of all things old-fashioned show business, right? right. She was like an old. Sophie Tucker type of a character who yes. said off-color things constantly. But she was like, you know, pretending to be uh, some kind of dowager on Park Avenue, but she really wasn't. Like she was a, with a, she came from being a chorus girl to, you know, you know, to ending up on Park Avenue. But so, but Madam just was this sort of underground act at the time. You know, it started in P-Town. And uh, he, Waylon was known as the guy with the puppet. He would go to like gay bars and like, talk dirty to people, and then he hit it big. You know, um, George Schlatter, I think, who did laugh and like, brought him out to the West Coast and put him in Norman, Is That You?, the movie with Red Fox. These are, like, things from the Stone Age. But, I mean, that's... And and then he became a big actor, and he had his own television show, and he played Las Vegas, like, five times a year, and and he made millions and millions of dollars. This, like, little naughty puppet that actually ended up taking Paul Lynn's place on the Hollywood Square, the Central Square, and and I remember being a little kid, and my mother would you know, bring us in and say, you know, first we would laugh at Paul Lynn, but we didn't know what we were laughing at. We had no idea. Like, we didn't know that what he was saying was dirty. Right. So, well, what, why are people laughing? Say, oh, he's just silly. You know, he's just silly. But then, and then, but then you had Madam, which was a puppet. So like a lot of kids, little kids liked her too because she's a puppet. And then she's saying these like things that would be very mild today. Like you couldn't even say them on television. People would be. You know, they were just cute old sort of corny jokes from the 1920s and things like that. But for television in those days, it was like a little risque. Yeah. And uh, and that's how deeply the longing for glamour (laughs) was within me, that like even a puppet (laughs) with like a little diamond bracelet on her wrist and a thing. I was like, that's for me. I don't want to be like that. Oh, that's amazing. Oh, my gosh. And I just, I vividly remember Madam on Solid Gold. Like, I just yeah, remember yeah. it so vividly. And, and Waylon Flowers was such a big deal because Waylon Flowers, it felt like one of the very few out gay people at the time in mainstream culture. Kind of ish, like you knew, but like no one said that. Right. <laughs> like he lived his life and lived his life and that was it. And like, you know, back then you had like bachelors or like, you know, you know, he like that. Oh, he's single. He never found the right girl. Uh, him, you knew he was a flamboyant person. And I would have to say, when people say, like, are you an out performer? I'm like, you know, I was so never in. Right. I was so never in the closet. Like, I don't even remember being in the closet. I remember being myself always, taking the lumps that came with it. You know, school was torture. and Boys were bullies. And, but I just thought, like, this is what it is. This is who I am, and that's it. And uh, the world wasn't really ready for it at the time. You know, my parents weren't ready for it at the time. But I don't really remember ever being in I don't. I, there are a lot of people who go, yes, I was really repressed, and that I came out, and, I, and I don't remember that. I just remember the people around me. There are people around me changing. They, yeah. they sort of had changed. Well, tell our listeners about Bazaz, a sequined variety. 
Well, like I say, it was a, it's a commission show. So it's one of the first shows that Don't Tell Mamas has actually like put their weight behind. Like they, They're creating shows now. So they have sort of a, a Broadway boozy brunch show, and they have a burlesque show at night. And this is their Saturday night variety show. And um, the opening night we had on October, uh, October 27th, I had two of my friends, David Mayoko and Chuck Sweeney. And David does Liberace. And uh, Chuck does a really, really funny take on Peggy Lee. Nice. Um, and you don't even have to know who she is. So that's, in a way, Chuck is like Madden. He's like a big puppet of Peggy Lee. He's just these crazy glasses and this, you know, feathery gown. And he's, but he's like Peggy Lee at the end a little bit, like a little on Valium and a little, <laughs> a little, you know, he's singing Fever and he's being a little sexy, but he's a little too old for it. It's funny. And then, um, and I had a comedian named Nancy Witter who uh, was like one of America's funniest moms on Comedy Central. She's really, really funny. So it's just an old fashioned sort of setup, meaning they don't have a lot of variety shows today. But I did like special material with them, like they used to do on variety shows, like Liza introduces the guests, but then she might come out and perform with them. So this month, Stephen Brindberg is doing Barbara Streisand. And uh, cabaret legend Sidney Meyer, uh, who's a very quirky performer yeah. and beloved character. So he's going to come out and sort of do a little tribute to to Barbara and help me make that night happen. And in the future, we're going to have, um, like, I'm, we're doing New Year's Eve there. And so um, that's going to be another big show. But we have that, what I love about it is that I bumped it up a notch. So I'm not just doing my solo Liza show. I'm able to do production numbers with these boys. So we're doing Arthur in the Afternoon from the act and uh, the title song, Bizazz, that was written by Liza's godmother. It's like a big jazzy number. And um, everybody comes out in sequence and does jazz hands. It's crazy. But um, it was a really, really big success, uh, October 27th. So we're looking forward to it again on November 25th and hope that it, it's supposed to... I don't know. The club wants it to become like a weekly thing. Right now it's monthly. But um, I hope there are enough. Uh, you know, we'll see. If, if it's a self-generating thing, meaning that if tourists sort of flock to it and it, the audience supports it, then we will continue into the new year. Oh, amazing stuff. I have to ask, what keeps it fresh for you, Rick? You've, you've been doing this for so long, right? You're obviously still being recognized for your incredible work. But how do you keep things fresh for you? Um, I guess because I just never, you know, the one true thing about show business is you never know if he'll do it again. Right. You, you know what I mean? Like, like when one show closes, you go, I, I could never be on another stage again. It's like, it's really an honor to be invited to perform for people. And, um, so what keeps it like after the Judy and Liza show was finished, I thought like I wouldn't do this again. And then when they said, would you do a variety show as Liza? I thought, mm, I can't, mm, I don't think so. And then I, my brain started going and I thought, well, like if I could get boys, you know, <laughs> to, you know, if I could bump it up a notch and do something I haven't done yet and actually do some dancing and do some, you know, production numbers in between my funny little songs, because I have all these parody songs that I do. Um, then, you know, maybe that would make it really fun for me. And indeed, it, it really did. But now I'm addicted to it. Like, I want, I want the boys to do every number, you know? Yes. <laughs> Have a whole new set with all the boys. So uh, that's what I'm working on now. It's, it's hard to get people in a room to rehearse in New York City. I have news for you. But, um, you know, we have a lot of dedicated people. So I think we'll make that happen. I just want there to be a lot of new material in it. 
And if you yeah. could design the perfect audience, our last question for you, if you mm-hmm. could design that perfect audience to come into Don't Tell Mamas, who, who would you like them to be? Oh, show business people. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, because my, my impersonation actually can be enjoyed on like three, at least three levels. Like, if you know nothing about Liza Minnelli, you'll see a lot of nice singing and dancing, and you'll think it was really fun. If you know something about, you know, her, then you'll get all of the references, and that's another layer. If, you're, if you love show business, there's like a million quotes and a million just old-fashioned show business thing that we've incorporated into it that, you know, you see the show business people just like roaring with laughter at certain things. You know, like, okay, they entirely get it on all three levels, so it's... Great. So my favorite audience would be a show business audience, especially if they're gay, because if there's nothing like getting a compliment from a gay guy after the show. Like if they go, honey, you got it right. You're like, ah, because this guy would have totally ripped me to, you know, totally go, that's not what she wore. That's not how she's like. And when they come out and go like, oh, we really enjoyed it. You, you know, we've seen a million things and we're in show business ourselves. And, you know, you, when they give you a compliment, that's, Really the best. Amazing. Amazing stuff. Listeners, let me tell you this. On Saturday, November 25th at 8 p.m., Rick Sky will be the hostess with the mostess as Liza Minnelli at Don't Tell Mamas, which we should tell everybody is located at 343 West 46th Street, right there in New York City, appearing in Bazaz, a sequined variety. It is going to be an absolute blast. I would love to get back home to New York City and see it with my folks because I know we'd have a great time. Rick, you are just plain entertaining. I've been following you for so long, and I appreciate that you have the whole throwback sense to you, and you are bringing us pure and utter entertainment, which is escapism at its best. And it's it's great stuff, Rick. Thank you so much. It was so much fun. Meine Damen und Herren, Mesdames et Messieurs, Ladies and Gentlemen, I give you that international sensation, Fräulein Sally Bowles. You have to understand the way I am, mein Herr. A tiger is a tiger, not a lamb, mein Herr. You'll never turn the vinegar to jam, mein Herr. So I do what I do. When I'm through, then I'm through. And I'm through. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye. My liebe Herr, farewell, my liebe Herr. It was a fine affair, but now it's over. And though I used to care, I need the open air. You're better off without me, mine hair. Don't dab your eye, mine hair, or wonder why, mine hair. I've always said that I was a rover. You mustn't knit your brow, you should have known by now. You've every cause to doubt me, mine hair. The continent of Europe is so wide, mine hair. Not only up and down, but side to side, mine hair. I couldn't ever cross it if I'd tried, mine hair. But I do what I can 
inch by inch, step by step, mile by mile, man by man, by, by. All right, folks, and we are back. Well, we have tons of time left on this week's episode to get to all of the latest LGBTQ news that's out there. You guys sent some awesome emails this week, by the way, so keep those coming. You can send any and all feedback or guest suggestions. If you have anyone that you're thinking about that you're like, oh, that person definitely needs to be on this show is so gay, just send me an email, Ken at this show is so gay.com. Every single email gets answered, and I absolutely love hearing from you. Ken at this show is so gay.com. Exciting news out of Australia. Couldn't be more exciting news out of Australia. Australia has voted yes in a historic nationwide survey on same-sex marriage. Almost 13 million Australians, that's 79.5%, voted in the country's non-binding postal ballot, a bigger turnout than even in the European Union's referendum, which was pretty huge. The historic vote follows in the footsteps of Ireland by endorsing same-sex marriage in a national vote. Australia now looks likely to become the 25th country in the world to introduce marriage equality for everybody. The results were announced this week, 12,727,920 people responded to the survey. Again, that rate of almost 80% is just beyond conception. If you've never done statistical data research, you just, you can't even hope for something like that. You absolutely cannot even hope for a response rate of around 80%. And in an election, my gosh, that's just off the charts. Well, of that 80% of people in Australia that voted, yes responses represented 61.6% of responses, with 38.4% voting no. That is a huge margin. Higher turnout with older participants and lower with younger participants, but not markedly so. Very interesting stuff there. Well, celebrations unsurprisingly took place all week long as soon as this was announced, including at the Yes Campaign headquarters all across Australia. Everything was going down in the party realm. Former conservative British Prime Minister David Cameron, who introduced same-sex marriage while he was Prime Minister, also welcomed the news. He tweeted, I'm incredibly proud of legalizing same-sex marriage in the UK and delighted that other countries are looking to do this same good day Australia. Very exciting. The No campaign conceded defeat, having previously said it would settle for a result over 40%, which they did not get. The former Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, said that if they got over 40%, he said that would be a moral victory. Well, they didn't, so there goes your moral victory, sir. Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull, who is a personal supporter of marriage equality, pledged that his government would support the move in the case of a yes vote. He had previously 
said that same-sex couples could be married by the end of this year if voters backed this yes campaign, which they overwhelmingly did. However, we should note that according to Australian governmental rules, this decision ultimately has to be approved by the parliament. This public vote is not actually legally binding, so both houses would still need to pass legislation in order for it to become legal. I suspect that they will do so. To not do so would be against the will of the people. So extraordinarily exciting belief there in Australia. 80% of people voting. That Again, that is off the charts, and that margin was huge. In one of the more comical elements to the story, an Australian married couple who claimed they would divorce if same-sex marriage was legalized, which, you know, it just was through this vote, even though it was a non-binding vote, they are not quite sure what to do. It's a very amusing story. In their 2015 statement to a newspaper, Nick and Sarah Jensen said they would still, quote, live together and call each other husband and wife in the eyes of God. But they then said that if marriage equality passed there in Australia, they would get a divorce. This then created a Facebook event. This is so funny. A Facebook event was then created called Celebrating Nick and Sarah Jensen's Divorce. And it had about 140 RSVPs just in the first week alone. So everybody is now turning their eyes to see, well, what's going to happen? Are they going to get divorced? That's just kind of funny. I mean, again, the idea that your marriage is in some way being threatened by other people being able to celebrate their love, that's just silliness. It's absolute silliness. And that's everything going on in Australia. I'm sure there are some conservative politicians. I've seen some stories out there who are digging in their heels saying, no, it's non-binding, non-binding. But when 80% of your country votes and that overwhelming, overwhelming majority says, yes, we want marriage equality here, you actually cannot go against your people like that. So well done, Australia. If you are listening there in Australia, we congratulate you and go get married. Exciting stuff. All right. Well, it's another week of This Show is So Gay, so that means yet another update on President Trump's ban of trans people serving openly there in the military. It's so funny. Last year, every single week, I felt like, ah, it's another update on North Carolina and the bathroom ban there and how much money that was costing North Carolina and how they still couldn't fix it. And it was a lawsuit after lawsuit and all of these top businesses saying, uh, we're going to pull out of doing business there in North Carolina. And I remember thinking, surely this will end at some point. And what other story is going to be every single week. Well, now we know as soon as North Carolina ended and then President Trump got elected, we know that every single week it is yet another update on President Trump's ban of trans people serving in the military. This week's update, the Pentagon has paid for the gender affirmation surgery of an active duty service member despite President Trump attempting to ban transgender people from serving openly in the military. The trans woman is an infantry soldier who got her combat infantry badge in Operation Anaconda in Afghanistan in 2003. This is according to a Defense Department source. Vice Admiral Raquel Bono who is the head of the Defense Health Agency, approved a waiver for the surgery to go ahead this week. According to NBC, the surgery will take place at a civilian hospital. The Pentagon in September issued new guidance which temporarily allowed trans troops to re-enlist in the military until it is determined how the controversial ban will be enforced. Defense Secretary Jim Mattis said in a memo to top Pentagon officials that current policies on serving trans troops 
groups remain in fact. So it has not yet changed. This means that current trans troops are permitted to continue their service with full access to health care, you know, like all of the other troops who are serving so bravely in our military. Again, what would the alternative be that President Trump issues three tweets and they tell people who have enlisted in the military, I'm sorry, you're out? I just still can't wrap my mind around that that's something that would actually happen. In this memo, though, that Defense Secretary Mattis put out there, which hasn't been released, but it was summarized, Defense Secretary Mattis said that the relax on the ban is only temporary until policies can be finalized. The temporary guidance will stretch until February 21st, the day after my birthday. I don't think those things have anything to do with each other, but I just wanted to highlight it. At that time, on February 21st, a final policy on the trans troop ban is expected to be reached by the Pentagon. This all comes as President Trump directed the military to ban trans troops from enlisting, but allowed Mattis to decide the fate of currently serving trans personnel. National Press Secretary for the Human Rights Campaign, Sarah McBride, said that it was clear that there is broad opposition within Congress and military leadership to Donald Trump and Mike Pence's discriminatory attacks on transgender troops. And we've seen that week in and week out, including on the Republican side. This is not just, oh, Democrats are against President Trump. It's actually not that at all. You have Senator McCain, who is about as Republican as Republican gets in a lot of different ways. Senator McCain, the head of the Armed Forces Committee, the top senator on issues of defense in that way, who stepped forward and said, you gotta be kidding me. By the way, that's me paraphrasing. It's not exactly what he said, but he said, people who choose to serve should be allowed to serve as long as they are fit to serve. So President Trump deciding through three tweets that individuals are not fit to serve due to their gender identity or gender expression? No, that's not how that works. Anyway, Sarah McBride from the Human Rights Campaign went on to say this, quote, Donald Trump's erratic July tweets and the subsequent half-baked orders have left the lives and careers of thousands of transgender service members in question. There's only one right answer here, and that is allowing any person willing and able to serve to do so, and we will not relent in our efforts to make that a reality. So that is yet another week of This Show is So Gay. And yet another update on the ban through three tweets in July of trans people serving openly in the military. So there's that. You know, the other thing I've been updating you on every week has been Roy Moore, right? So we had Attorney General Sessions when he left his post as senator in the great state of Alabama, left an opening, and Roy Moore, twice removed, twice removed as the high court justice there in the Supreme Court of Alabama, twice removed for his conduct, twice removed for ethical reasons. Every week I was giving you a different update about Roy Moore because there were so many people that didn't know about Roy Moore. Now there is absolutely no one who doesn't know about Roy Moore. Everyone knows about Roy Moore. I don't even feel like I really need to cover it here, but Roy Moore has been accused of abusing so many different teenagers, of acting inappropriately with so many underage women. So at the time of this recording, they're trying to get Jeff Sessions to maybe come back to the Senate, maybe be a write-in candidate, but there's still the part where Roy Moore, twice removed from the Alabama Supreme Court there, 
is still leading by a number of points in the state of Alabama. I'm not exactly sure how that is possible, given the allegations and given the fact that he hasn't totally denied them. He feels that he's being attacked by the media. Yes, sir, you are certainly the focus of intense scrutiny, given the fact that all of these different women have stepped forward and said that you acted supremely inappropriately towards them. So... I feel kind of like the wind is knocked out of me with Roy Moore. Every week I felt like, all right, I got to tell the listening audience, there's this guy. But now all of you know about Roy Moore. We will see what happens with Roy Moore. I suspect by the time you all listen to this episode, things are going to be very, very different. We'll see. We'll see. How about some happy news? Let's turn to the state of California. California has become the first state California has become the first state to approve LGBT-inclusive history books for primary schools. This is so incredible. The California State Board of Education this week approved the 10 new textbooks for K-8 through schools. In doing so, the state becomes the first in the United States to approve LGBT-inclusive textbooks. Two other textbooks were rejected as they did not include LGBT history. So it's not just that they have these really affirming textbooks. They rejected two textbooks that didn't have LGBT history. They were then in violation of the state's 2011 Fair Education Act. The legislation, written by Senator Mark Lino, requires social sciences and history curriculums to teach about LGBT history and people with disabilities. This week's move has been celebrated by Equality California. The organization's executive director, Rick Zber, said this, quote, This long-fought victory is the next step for California students to learn about the contributions and history of LGBTQ people. Approval of these textbooks means that California schools will now have access to approved materials that accurately represent LGBTQ people, and Equality California applauds the State Board of Education for this historic decision. This is such a big deal, all of you guys. It's such a big deal for students who are sitting in those classrooms. They get to learn about the very rich history of the LGBTQ community. That's a wonderful thing. They're going to see intersectionality. And by the way, I don't want to gloss over the fact that that legislation, again, written by Senator Mark Lino, requires social sciences and history curriculums to also teach about people with disabilities. So we're going to see some intersectionality there, which is always a great great thing. So I'm very excited. The Out Family Coalition also celebrated the move. The executive director of the Out Family Coalition, Renata Morera, said this, quote, the decision today means that LGBTQ students and those with LGBTQ families will finally be able to see themselves and our history accurately reflected in textbooks in California. We celebrate this vote and are more than ready to continue working with partners and educators on the next chapter as we move to district adoption across the state. So again, it's a really big deal. We have such a rich history, and it will be acknowledged in these history curricula and these social science curricula. It's a very, very good thing. On the other side of the spectrum, the Colorado Christian University organized a rally to defend a religious baker who was seeking to undermine LGBT discrimination protections, and speaking at the event was a rabbi. That's right, a rabbi who compared gay people. Now, right, this could be a really fun fill-in-the-blank. We could do a contest. Whoever comes closest to what the rabbi compared gay people to would win, but um, I don't know if you would get it this week, because this week the rabbi compared gay people to space aliens. That's right, 
space aliens. Jack Phillips of Colorado's Masterpiece Cake Shop is at the center of a case over anti-LGBT discrimination that is soon going to be heard by the Supreme Court of the United States, which is a big deal. Phillips launched a legal challenge after being found in violation of state anti-discrimination laws for refusing to serve gay couple David Mullins and Charlie Craig. The baker earlier this year claimed that Jesus Christ that's right, Jesus Christ, would discriminate against gay people, and he continues to insist that his religion requires discrimination against gay people. Well, speaking at the Christian University, Rabbi Yaakov Menken of the Coalition for Jewish Values made this comparison. He said this, quote, If space aliens were to land tomorrow, they would solve the problem. Now, some of you probably think I'm nuts, but let me explain. Let's imagine E.T. lands tomorrow and someone falls in love with E.T. and decides to get married to E.T., Trust me, within two years, the Supreme Court would decide that under the U.S. Constitution, Sally or Bill could get married to E.T. But because aliens are not human beings, and despite what you've seen on Star Trek, it would be impossible for aliens and humans to have children together. That would be the biblical definition of marriage. And Jack Phillips would not be able to bake them a cake. And then it would be obvious. I'm not even kidding, folks. This keeps going. He keeps saying, the rabbi. And then it would be obvious that he's not discriminating against anyone. He's not singling out same-gender couples for exclusion. On the contrary, he is saying he can only celebrate a biblical marriage that involves a human man and a human woman, and the ACLU would have to pack up and go home. Are your lawyers taking notes, Jack? End quote. That is a rabbi, an actual rabbi, saying that gay people, it's kind of like aliens. Mm, not so much. Not so much. A teacher at a New York school has been suspended from her job after teaching students about LGBT issues, including the term bottom. I'm not sure about this one. Jacqueline Hall, the health teacher at the Cambridge Central High School, was suspended with pay after inviting a guest lecturer to teach about LGBT issues. A second day of lectures by the Pride Center of the Capital Region was also canceled by the school. Parents had complained about a pack given out to students which taught about gender identity and sexual orientation. The packet given out in the lesson included definitions of terms like lesbian, I'm cool with that, transgender, that sounds good, Cisgender, sounds good, and bottom. Mm, that seems like a bit much, even to me. I'm pretty liberal. The pack defined bottom as, quote, a person who is said to take a more submissive role during sexual interactions. So this teacher was suspended with pay. I don't know. She might have taken that too far. It's fun to learn about sexual orientation. It's great to be sex positive. I don't know that we necessarily need to teach terms like top and bottom right there in high school. Just saying. One parent, Sorel Fiel, took to Facebook, recording a video expressing his disgust that his child would be taught about gender identity. And I don't even need to read that, but you can tell this was not good. It was not good. So that's a teacher suspended with pay. It's not looking good for her. And finally, it has been a great week for trans representation in America, but some pundits have got some rather odd theories about why. 
Last week, as I noted in last week's episode, there was just history was absolutely made as all of these trans candidates were elected across the United States, including including Andrea Jenkins, who became the first trans person of color elected to any office in the United States. This Democrat won by a landslide, clocking up more than 73% of the first choice votes in Minneapolis's 8th Ward to give her a place on the city council. And of course, Danica Rem became the first transgender person to be elected as a state official in the United States by beating a transphobe. I mean, she absolutely beat a transphobe. And other amazing developments like the council in Palm Springs entirely now made up of LGBT representatives. But again, there are some theories why. Gavin McInnes, the host of the CRTV show Get Off My Lawn, this is what he thought. He first blamed the wins on identity politics, and then he said this quote, The liberals say maybe we should give up on identity politics, but you look at all the Sikhs and black people and trans who won in this election and all these unprecedented cases. It had nothing to do with policy. It was all identity politics. But then he keeps going. This took a little bit of a twist. He then went on to suggest that the victories are due to the fact that women were given the right to vote. He said this, quote, I was looking at those two trannies who won. He actually said this. I was looking at those two trannies who won. There's no substance there at all. And I think it's because we let women vote. Women have been voting now based on their feels for many years. They brought us Obama. No substance. It's all just girls, girls, girls playing politics. Again, this is one host who's saying, well, had we not given women the right to vote, these trans people wouldn't have been elected. Can we all just rise up on that one? Can we all just turn our televisions to a different channel? Because that seems rather ridiculous, right? Come on, we're agreed on that. Oh my gosh. Our huge thanks to Rick Sky. He is doing such incredible work there in New York City, and I urge you to go see him at Don't Tell Mamas. It's going to be just ridiculously entertaining. It's going to be ridiculously entertaining. So take a night out. And I, again, as I said this during the interview, what's going on at some of these piano bars like the duplex and Don't Tell Mamas, I am telling you, rivals so much of what is happening actually on Broadway. It absolutely rivals it. In many cases, it's just plain better. So I urge you, you should go see Rick Sky. And again, any suggestions whatsoever, just drop me an email. Ken at this show is so gay.com. That's Ken at this show is so gay.com. You can, of course, support us by subscribing on iTunes. Go on over to iTunes, subscribe to our show. It'll automatically upload every week. You don't even need to think about it. We have some incredible, incredible episodes coming up. And you can go to Amazon and pick up my book. It is called Seriously, What Am I Doing Here? The Adventures of a Wandering and Wandering Gay Jew. That's seriously, what am I doing here? The Adventures of a Wandering and Wandering Gay Jew. Check out the reviews. You don't need to take my word for it. I wouldn't trust me. I wrote the book. Of course I want you to buy it. But check out the reviews. And I think, I don't know, it might sway you to spend, at this moment, $13 to get yourself a paperback. So go check that out and pick it up. You guys, you know what to do. Right? At this point, 10 years later, episode 426, you got to know what to do. Get out there. You need to go use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference for your LGBTQ brothers and sisters, for all of our allies out there. I don't know how you best use your voice. I do this radio show. 
I try to use my pen. You might write letters to the editor. You might have a movie night in your community. You might read a book. You might write a book. I don't care what it is. Be more informed. Take to Twitter. Maybe post some things on Instagram. Whatever it is that you do best to use your voice the way you know how to use it to make a difference. I urge you to do it. It's going to make a difference for others, and it's going to make you feel incredible in the process. So put on your cape, get out there, use your voice, and please remember, why be gay when you can be so gay?